This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hey guys, welcome back to Abraham's Wallet, and this week we're diving into part two of a podcast that, honestly, I thought we were going to get it done in two. I think we're going three parts on this sucker, but it's every 23-year-old's favorite topic, inheritance. No? Oh, well, listen, this week I'm going to tell some horror stories about what happens when inheritance gets divorced from God's plan for how inheritance is supposed to be a culture-making and child-shaping piece of every strong family's story. Um, And honestly, if you are a younger guy who maybe isn't even married yet, uh, this might seem irrelevant to you, but stay with me. My goal is to show you that God actually has a plan for inheritance and you can start building that uh, into the foundation of how you think about family even now before you're married. And if you are married or maybe you have kids or maybe you're a grandparent already, uh, all the better. This will be highly relevant. This week, we're going to tell some stories about what happens when this goes sideways. And next week, I'm going to give you a few tips for how in our family... We're trying to lay the foundation for biblical inheritance with some kind of actionable steps that might be useful to you. So hopefully you enjoy this one, and we'll wrap this up next week with a final uh, practical steps for the inheritance-minded Abrahamic family leader. All right, here we go. Now, I told you last week that I was going to give you a little whiff of how the inheritance game can go quickly and destructively sideways in the life of a person. And today is kind of like back in elementary school when you were on that Indian guide's camp out and the dads all told you to gather around the campfire and listen to some scary stories. Except unlike that Deerslayer yarn, the statistics and tales that I'm about to tell, well, they're all very real. Too real, you could say. You could. Um, But if you've got an open box of graham crackers and some marshmallows, now would be the time to fire up the campfire. Let's hear from the Bible. Proverbs 2, verse 6 through 9 says, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. Listen up, youngins, as I spin a tale of inheritances squandered, of fortunes destroyed, and reputations maligned. Yes, it was on a night, just like tonight. Okay, frankly, I could stick to the kitschy fun stuff, like the story of Jonathan Jackson, who died in Columbus, Ohio, and bequeathed his fortune to further the establishment of a cat house. No, it wasn't a brothel. It was an actual house designed from the ground up to serve the needs of hundreds of cats, replete with a conversation room. Mm-hmm. Check this out, guys. It was perfect. I'm here all night. And an accordion listening area. Who's going to play the accordion to these cats? 
We don't know, but whoever he is, his salary has been endowed for life. Yeah, I could stick to that kind of stuff for this whole podcast. Although fascinating in a macabre sort of way, that would feel a little gimmicky and probably wouldn't get my point across very well. And since I'm on a cautionary tale kick as of late, you can go back and listen to my cautionary tale of a Mother's Day gone wrong, I'll steer us towards some more instructive histories. But before I hit you with the heavy stuff, why would I even want to talk about what happens when inheritance goes sideways? To convince you that inheritance is bad? Right after I spent a whole lot of time painting a picture of the nobility of biblical inheritance? No, 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 no. I'm trying to illustrate one thing here. That when inheritance is divorced from the biblical model, okay, I'll give you the the primer now. It's identity-laden, productive, and requires claiming. That's our biblical model. It all goes to hell. And this, my friends, is what that particular hell looks like. Tale number one, I will hunt you down. So if you enjoy these inheritance blowing up lives types of stories that I'm about to start telling, you're in luck. Because any Google search will yield endless tales of inheritance-related disaster. And that was my diligent and thorough process in coming up with a few savory stories for your enjoyment. But there was one that caught my eye right off the bat because it happened right down the street from my childhood home. This is not a lie. It's a true story. Uh, I grew up on a pretty nice street in Dallas, Texas. I'm not going to pretend for a second to have come from a blue-collar background. However, there was a house at the end of the block that made all of our homes, by comparison, look like they could have been attached to semi-trucks and carted off by a collection agent. It was ritzy. And just a side note, I'm not sad about this, okay? These wealthy neighbors owned several acres of wooded lots surrounding their home, which they just left undeveloped, and so a large part of my childhood was spent exploring these woods and jumping BMX bikes around inside of them. So, hooray for the unobservant rich, am I right? Anyways, inside that colossal home lived a certain Mr. Hunt, heir to part of the fortune generated by H.L. Hunt, a classic Texas oil tycoon who was at one point among America's richest men. Did you know that his son invented the American Football League and the Super Bowl? True story. Being a multi-generationally minded tycoon, and here at Abraham's Wallet, we actually think that's the best kind, HL had set up trusts to push his fortune out into future generations. To make a very long story very short, one of his heirs didn't like the cut he was getting and decided to sue my neighbor and a few of the other heirs for the fortune. As a result, the family ended up selling Grandpa's company and dismantling what was meant to be a family asset for the ages and turning it into a pile of cash. We all know what happens when you turn a productive, identity-laden family asset into a pile of cash, right? Here's a hint. It's a big loser. What's more, the litigious beneficiary was disinherited and shortly thereafter indicted on multiple counts of mortgage fraud. Desperate folks can end up turning to crime in effort to make ends meet, but evidently, inheritance can make a man feel like he's desperate for more than the millions he's already receiving from the family trust, uh, I guess. If you didn't know the family, and to be clear, I didn't really know the family, I was more of a 12-year-old, slightly creepy kid leering from the bushes type, this would sound like a big nothing burger of a story, kind of par for the course. 
But for me, the kicker lies in the fact that my billionaire neighbor drove an old pickup truck around town. You see, when H.L. Hunt had made great efforts to provide for many generations, he also had evidently been training his descendants in the useful skills of things like not wasting money on depreciating assets. And, by the way, that's a real good skill to have. No matter how many billions they had socked away. Uh, It's particularly sad to see benefactors behaving as some say they always will and tearing each other apart when really they should have had hundreds of generations of family strength. So let's all pour one out for H.L. Hunt. He tried. Proverbs 19.13 says, A foolish son is the ruin of his father. So that's the story of the Hunt family. The next tale I'm entitling Jack Takes a Wrong Turn. Jack Whittaker is a fine proxy for the lottery winner portion of this article. And I say proxy because you can pretty much replace his story with about 95% of the people who have experienced massive windfalls, be they from parents or from state-sponsored programs by which the poor are voluntarily taxed. That's, That's the lottery, guys. And I talk about lottery winners alongside inheritors because that's basically what our backward society has turned inheritance into, right? A big pile of money, and not much more, that everybody just sort of hopes doesn't destroy you. Let me say it again. This whole system is bereft of any value whatsoever. It's almost as a demonic power invented it to maul and maim families. And... To be honest, it makes me seethe with righteous anger, but uh, let's get back to the story. One day after Christmas 2002, this Johnny Cash lookalike guy, Jack Whitaker, woke up as usual at 4.30 a.m. You see, he worked uh, hard. His job was laying sewer pipes and tending a small business that employed over 100 folks in West Virginia and Ohio. And he woke up early this morning to find that he'd won the largest undivided lottery jackpot in history. What a cool story, right? Married for 40 years to the same woman, caring for children and grandchildren faithfully. Could it have happened to a nicer fella? This story is probably going to turn out great, right? I bet it is. Overnight riches for a super nice guy. But wait, there's more. Jack's next move was to tithe a tenth of his winnings. What a guy. At this point, every person on every church staff in America is nodding slowly in approval of our man Jack except the jealous ones and the authors of this blog. But his second move, well, his second move was to visit the local strip club. No, Jackie, wrong way. And here, our story begins to devolve, exposing Jack, the church-going gambler, as yet another victim of American finance brain corrosion. You see, within eight months, Jack's devoted granddaughter had become known for smoking really big crack rocks all around town, Jack had been repeatedly robbed, he abandoned his wife in favor of prostitutes, and he had transitioned from a noble benefactor of his impoverished West Virginia community to the loathed, entitled scourge of the city. A few months later, his daughter, granddaughter, and her boyfriend had all died from likely overdoses. Jack is alone and pretty much broke these days, and whatever multi-generational claim he once had, well, it's, it's gone and dead now. Proverbs 13.11 says, The more easily you get your wealth, the sooner you will lose it. The harder it is to earn, the more you will have. Okay, okay, Marco, you may be saying, I see that inheritance can wreck a person like the ones you're describing, but 
not this cowboy, right? I'm real, real super smart, and I've got my ducks in a row. I'm a capable and willing vessel for a windfall. Well, I have one last story, and it's for you, my doubting friend. The third tale I'm going to tell you is of the gambling widow, or you could call her the gambling mare, or the gambling burger heiress of Southern California. It's not a great title, but that's that's what we're going to run with. Her name was Maureen O'Connor, and she was a political up-and-comer already in the midst of a run for the San Diego City Council when she married Robert O. Peterson, the gentleman who would found Jack in the Box and gift the world with the sourdough jack. And just as an aside, I'm going to tell you that I think the sourdough jack is still a remarkable choice in the world of fast food hamburgery. But Maureen postnuptially went on to become the first female mayor of San Diego and hold the office for almost a decade. That's all to say, she was pretty much a baller before and after her husband's success. Probably smarter than you self-confident jello heads. And yet, when he died, and his $50 million of equity turned into cash deposited directly into Miss O'Connor's accounts, things didn't go so well. You see, old Maureen decided to engage in what psychologists have since termed grief gambling. On the positive side, Maureen won $1 billion during this binge. That's not nothing, right? But on the negative side, over the same time period, she lost more than $1 billion, leaving her with, you guessed it, debt. Seeing her unenviable position, she did what any go-getter with a gambling problem would do. Why, she raided the coffers of her late husband's charitable organization. Dang it, Maureen. And, of course, legal censure and destitution are where this story ends. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. So this feels like a really depressing choose-your-own-adventure book, doesn't it? Where it doesn't matter if you give the mysterious heirloom back to the gypsy or use the incantation scrawled inside for yourself. Either way, everyone's going to die. Doesn't it start to feel like that? Guess what? It is like that, Chachi. These stories all suck. So I'm going to give you some statistics, and then we're going to claw our way out of this sad story land and talk about what inheritance really could be. So lest you just quit now and say, whoa, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this inheritance game. Sign me up for the charitable giving option. I don't want any of this pain. Let me remind you that every one of these statistics and stories we just talked about result from being woefully unprepared for dealing with a massive pile of unearned cash. Money by itself, I will again remind you, doesn't meet any of the requirements for biblical inheritance. Once again, those are identity-laden, productive, and requires claiming. But that doesn't mean that money as a part of a larger inheritance should just be burned to the ground. No way. We want to be savvier than our run-of-the-mill lottery winner, friends. So put these stats into your thinking cap. When it comes to large, and by that I mean over a million dollars, intergenerational wealth transfers, so... Money passed from one generation to the next, over a million dollars. 70% will be exhausted by the recipients. Or we could put it another way, only 30% of the people who pass large inheritances down to their children will successfully fund generations beyond their children. The takeaway here is that multi-generational vision has to be carefully articulated and trained, 
or it just won't transfer. The money will get eaten along with your dreams of a true family legacy. Statistic number two, amongst lottery winners, and you can just replace that with people who receive unearned financial windfall, sounds like a lot of inheritors, right? 70% spend their winnings down to zero within five years. What's the takeaway here? Well, limiting the spending power of inheritors through giving gates or, heck, through good training of your children, uh, and that might mean saying no often to your children, for example, well, this is a smart move if you care about your great-grandchildren. Next, receiving more or less money does not impact the odds of going broke in the long term. Those who receive small amounts are more likely to go broke for the first two years. But after that, bankruptcy rates are the same whether you receive $10,000 or $10 million. And get this little nugget. Both rates of going busto are higher than people who receive zero. <laughs> So we want to reiterate that giving unearned money to people who have no vision for it will default to the flesh, and they're going to hang themselves with it. It doesn't really matter how much it is. Money without training and maturity is a disaster. Here's another stat for you. Suicide, depression, and divorce rates all increase for individuals who experience financial windfalls. The American dream is one of material abundance, conspicuous consumption, and, and not much else. So if your hope is in those things and you luck into getting them without paying any dues, then you see they're destitute and void of true meaning and you end up empty. In other words, it's Jesus or else, right? So lastly, those who inherit a successful family business, I'm foreshadowing what we're about to get into here, they're 10 times more likely to avoid all of the pitfalls that we just mentioned. Another study found that successful family businesses that make it past one generation are highly correlated to strong social relationships. You know, the kind that tend to exist in a healthy family. A third study found that the primary determinant of happiness is the strength of social relationships. So put all that together, and it may actually be true that money alone, that is a non-productive pile of spendable cash, has nothing to do with the fact that a family capable of passing along biblical inheritance will also produce successful, happy people. So I'm going to leave you with four points and hopefully an appetite to find out what the heck is is a young guy supposed to do if he wants to set a family up that could be that biblical inheritance producing powerhouse. Point number one, big piles of cash earmarked for consumption are dangerous to almost everyone, no matter how they were acquired. Point number two, that danger is doubled when that money is unearned. And FYI, outliving a relative does not count as earned. Again, the more easily you get your wealth, the sooner you will lose it. The harder it is to earn, the more you will have. Proverbs 13.11. Proverbs 13, in general, is full of golden nuggets for the person who wants to learn about how to handle wealth. But... The stats are very clear about the hazards of overnight wealth. That's what we just described. So point number three, here at Abraham's Wallet, we regularly aspire to be the types of dudes who are capable of being entrusted with more of the king's resources. Again, there are four types of resources that are worth more than hard cash. Listen to our episode on the five capitals to learn what they are. 
We want to be trustworthy managers of the Father's riches. Chief among them, his revelation and his children, so as not to be disqualified from any of it, money included. And point number four, if you're in the family building business, you're in the inheritance game as well. But simply handing down cash jackpot wads is a loser of an idea. It will hurt your progeny, not help them. If you need an example of that, just listen to this whole episode again. So in our family, we're looking to create identity-laden productive assets that require each recipient to work hard if they want to squeeze the juicy goodness out of their inheritance. That looks like a lot more than just a family business. It's a spiritual heritage that we build around our table on Shabbat, or the equity that we all acquire in our vision for the family that God's given us as we engage in our annual vision and goals summits. And yes, it's even the productive endeavors we build alongside each other to finance the work we've been collectively called towards. I don't know if we'll end up with a lot of money to hand down or a little. Early returns say it'll be a good bit, thank God. But I do know that we're aggressively constructing our family culture, planning our investments, and training our children so that biblical inheritance can be a healthy, productive, not destructive part of our story. And if you're asking exactly what that looks like and want more practical how-tos, well, I've got you right where I want you. You're going to have to join me next week for the final part to get the details on this. Let me leave you with Proverbs 13.22, though. It says, A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that's what we're after. Until next week, I'm Mark Parrott, and this is Abraham's Moment.